It's Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled podcast, uh, that 401k podcast, another fun-filled episode. Uh, this week's topic, we're going to talk about 401k ideas that look great on paper, but are just dreadful and awful in practice. Um, of course, first things first, uh, special Thursday drop, because uh, Friday is uh, the event in St. Louis. Um, and of course, go to that 401 for further information on that 401k conference in Minneapolis as well. Uh, that's going to be on September 24th, September 20, um, September 29th will be the, uh, Planet Houston event at, uh, Minute Maid Park. And of course we have an event, uh, in January at New York, New York Hotel and Casino, um, January 21, 20. 22, and then the following week, we're going to do a national virtual conference um, to attend. Uh, that one is just going to be uh, $20.22. Uh, go to that 401ksite.com for further information. And of course, since this drops on a Thursday, you still want to sign up for St. Louis the next day. Uh, you can go to that 401ksite.com um, and sign up uh, for the St. Louis event. There will be room available. <laughs> Thank you, Delta Variant. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we tread ahead and, and hopefully, uh, by 2022, we'll get out of this pandemic somehow. Um, so let's get back to the topic at hand. Um, I'm a big fan of business history. I think people know that, uh, from my writings and, and from obviously the podcasts and, there are a lot of great ideas in business that, you know, on paper look great, but in practice, they were just dreadful. Um, I always joke about Crystal Pepsi. Um, you know, for those who don't know, Crystal Pepsi was the idea of a colorless uh, Pepsi drink uh, without, you know, obviously without the coloring, the caramel coloring. And, uh, you know, it looked great idea on paper until you drank it and you realize this isn't Pepsi or this isn't Diet Pepsi. This is like some kind of fruity concoction and it failed miserably. Um, recently, I would say, you know, four or five years ago, um, I'm a big soda stream fan because I drink a lot of soda and was tired of dealing with the New York State deposits on bottles and, and whatnot. So I got a soda stream machine and uh, Keurig made a deal with Coca Cola. And I thought that that was going to be a really bad deal for SodaStream. And then SodaStream did get an investment from Pepsi. But what was interesting about the Keurig cold, uh, as it was called, um, I thought this was going to be a killer for SodaStream. But really, they, they did a dreadful job of it. They created a huge machine that, you know, the big deal for them was they didn't use the cartridges the um, CO2 canisters that SodaStream did. So instead they created a bulkier machine and uh, the, uh, they had these like pellets, uh, like, you know, just like the K-Cups and it was soda, but it was only an eight ounce soda and the eight ounce soda um, cost more than a can, 12 ounces of soda. So when I first saw it, I'm like, this is going to fail miserably. And, and, it, and it did. It wasn't that long before... Um, um, Target was putting 70% off. I mean, you know, Coke Zero and all that and, and, and all your Coca-Cola flavors. That machine is a great idea, but it just didn't make any sense. Why would you put a bulky machine like that in your home? Um, 
I mean, people said it was geared more towards business because the machine was a couple hundred bucks. It took up all of that room. But, you know, if you're a business, why wouldn't you stock up your fridge with cans of Coke and Sprite and all that stuff rather than pay more money for these little pellets, uh, you know, these little cups and capsules that uh, were more expensive than, you know, uh, you know a six-pack or 12-pack of soda. But in the retirement plan business, we always have a lot of, you know, ideas that, wow, this, this makes a lot of sense. And then you realize, um, you know, actuality that it's, it's really dreadful. Um, first thing on my hit list is immediate entry date. Um, you know, being an ERISA attorney, I am a big fan of retirement plan coverage. The more people cover in the retirement plan, the better, um, especially on the deferral side. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of immediate eligibility for deferrals. I know a lot of employers don't want that, but I believe that, uh, you know, if that's eventually going to be the future, uh, you will eventually see, you know, I, I don't know how many years down the line, but I think that they will mandate some type of coverage. We already see that with the, uh, long time, we, we got the change with the long term, um, part-time employees that's, that's coming down the pike. In 2023 but um, you know I do like immediate eligibility for deferral side because we still have that otherwise you know the, the testing we can still test as if the plan had a 21 one for purposes of ADP um, you know obviously um, you know there are employers that are not going to like immediate eligibility um, if they have a lot of part-time employees or, or large turnover um, well, I, well, I still love immediate eligibility. I hate immediate entry. I think that's one of the worst ideas out there. And actually, um, this past week, I, I drafted a plan that had immediate entry because this is what the client wants. I like entry dates because, you know, I like entry dates. I like first day of the month, I like first day of the quarter. I don't like dual entry. That's an old type of you know rule back then. I, I'm not a big fan of dual entry. Um, I think it, you know immediate entry is one of the worst ideas ever. Um, it's all about tracking. Um, you know, immediate entry means that you know it's immediate. So if you look at the work week, you know you have as many as 260 possible entry dates within a year, rather than. Um, dual entry where you have two and quarterly you have four and monthly where you have 12. Um, I just think that you, you, you know, as a plan sponsor, you certainly um, just ask for an error because one of the frequent errors is not allowing people who are eligible to enter the plan and defer. So there could be missed deferral opportunities uh, left and right if you you know, forgot to properly include somebody in the plan. I always believe when it comes to plan administration that people should follow the policy that I call KISS, which is keep it simple, stupid. And I think allowing employees to participate in the plan in any day, you know, on, in the calendar, uh, it's just a terrible idea. And, and I, I use the 260 days, but it's possible that, you know, if you hired somebody on a Saturday or, um, you know, they're eligible on a Saturday, it's just, to me, it's just, I believe that you should, uh, you know, avoid these kind of errors, and I think that immediate entry is, is is one of those, you know, plan provisions that's begging for errors. So that's why 
I believe that it should be avoided at all costs. Next on my hit list, which makes me somewhat unpopular, I'll turn in the punch bowl, is a self-directed brokerage account. I've, I've railed against it. Um, my feelings about self-directed brokerage accounts uh, are well known. Um, I used to joke uh, years ago that the only people interested in self-directed brokerage accounts were lawyers, doctors, and accountants, and it stopped becoming a joke because that was actually the reality of it. Um, the you know the point of the self-directed brokerage account allows you know participants to make investments outside of the plan's investment lineup. Um, so rather than investing in a limited number of options that's allowed on the plan fund lineup, which was you know. In most plans properly selected by the investment advisor for the plan, uh, a self-directed brokerage account, you know, allows, you know, the, the universe, <laughs> allows participants the, almost the universe to invest in ETFs, uh, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and all that. Uh, I don't like self-directed brokerage accounts because, you know, the first reason uh, is that I find that, you know, participants do worse in these than they do if they invested in the core lineup. Um... Second, I still think there are fiduciary liability concerns for uh, plan sponsors. Um, it's not so well settled law that a, a fiduciary is not responsible for the investments made by a participant in a self-directed brokerage account. It's not settled law yet, although it should be. Um, and you know, uh, plan fiduciaries have a duty to be a fiduciary for all plan assets, including money in self-directed brokerage accounts. And I don't think a lot of fiduciaries do any due diligence in revealing what type of investments their participants are making in the plan. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I think people, you know, may call me a stick in the mud, but I just think that, you know, in these days, uh, do you want to have 401k plan participants essentially day trade when they should be working um, and potentially making reckless investment decisions? Um you know, you may have the you know the participant that puts in a hundred percent of their money in a double inverse ETF, uh, like a, a short ETF or whatnot, and potentially lose their shirt or their blouse. And um, I think the plan sponsors really have enough head uh, headaches uh, to worry about. Um, you know, and, and then you know dealing with uh, participants who uh, do the self-directed brokerage account. And also another reason why I don't like them is um, I find with some of these employers, they only offer it to the highly competent employees. Uh, I worked at a law firm where uh, only the partners were given the opportunity for the self-directed brokerage account. But, you know, being a lowly associate, I didn't want to make uh, you know a problem of the violation of the benefits, rights, and features, um, where you know uh, it has to the benefit right feature can't just be discriminatory in favor of highly compensated employees. And obviously, when you're not giving your lower-paid staff, you know, the secretaries in the office, the opportunity to, um, you know, open up a brokerage account, you might have a problem. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, plan sponsors that just want to offer to the highly compensated employees forget about. Next on the hit list, um, obviously it's new, uh, Bitcoin investments. Um, you know, uh, Bitcoin and, you know, any kind of crypto investments. I don't want to take a knock against Ethereum. It's doing, um, up until a couple of days ago, it was doing quite well. 
there is obviously a huge interest. They see the returns. There's obviously a huge interest um, uh, in allowing these type of investments in, in 401k plans. And uh, and I had a law professor once say, you know, you got to stop out that silly notion. Um, crypto investments, first of all, are not regulated. Um, we see, you know, every week it feels like somebody's developing their own crypto. Uh, they're unregulated markets, um, and they're just not a you know a good fit for you know four one k plans that are obviously heavily regulated. Um, you know there are some providers out there that are going to be offering it within a you know kind of a window of a like a self directed brokerage account where you know the maximum crypto investment may be five percent five to ten percent of a participant's account balance. Um, I think a crypto window, in, in my opinion, is a potential disaster. I, you know, full disclosure, I have uh, crypto investments. I've done quite well. There are moments where I haven't done quite well. Um, you know, it's a, you're talking about, uh, you know, swings of seven or eight thousand dollars in the span of weeks. Uh, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Uh, this week I'm down four thousand dollars pretty quickly. Um, they have tremendous growth, but you know they have wild swerves in terms of positive or negative gains. And the problem with that is dealing with participants is that they're very good at locking in their losses. So once they see a swerve that's going down, and we, we did have a meltdown in uh, crypto investments of the last few months, you know, issues dealing with the crackdown by the Chinese government and whatnot, that I just think that that's just an opportunity to... Um, Make a mess, and you know, as long as the Department of Labor hasn't ruled on it, this isn't something that um, I I would allow. My, you know, I, I I certainly would tell my clients not to even think about it. And I've had discussions with clients about it. I just think that uh, right now, as it, as it stands, it's just a terrible, terrible idea. Speaking of terrible ideas, um, unlimited plan loans. It's always the top of my list you know I'm all for the rights of participants to borrow against their 401k account but again um, I'm a big fan you know again when you spend almost 10 years working for QPAs you have uh, a belief uh, or, or you have an idea of what provisions will cause administrative errors and, and what won't and one provision that would cause a lot of administrative errors and I've seen it is unlimited plan loans um, I remember years ago when I was uh, at Gilla Group, um, we had a um, carpet manufacturer. They, would, they did like fa uh, really, you know, it wasn't like Mohawk, but it was like, you know, really fancy, you know, expensive, custom-made carpets or whatever. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, they had a plan that came over to us, and, you know, you had people with seven, eight loans. And the problem with seven or eight loans, it's a problem with tracking. Um, too many times a TPA and the plan sponsor forget to pay off a specific loan. You know, there are seven or eight loans, they'll, they'll forget one. And the problem is, is that, um, you know, if you don't pay off uh, a loan uh, on at least a quarterly basis, you have a default. And um, it's really uh, a tough conversation to have with plan participants that there's a potential default and a... Uh, 
Team distribution, that's taxable because of an error caused by the plan sponsor or the TPA. Um, you know, I've dealt with too many um, VCP situations dealing with plan loans. I've de dealt with too many um, plan audits dealing with plan loans. Um, I just think that uh, these are um, mistakes that should be avoided. Uh, I've seen, you know, coming up on an audit, it's obviously more expensive than if it comes through uh, a voluntary fix by the plan sponsor through the VCP. So, you know, I just think that um, you should, uh, you know, plans should have uh, the allowance of refinancing of plan loans, but to only have one loan outstanding at all times, just to keep it simple, stupid. Obviously, another error that I've always touched upon is obviously hiring the top two payroll companies as a TPA. Um, you know, obviously it's been sold to plan, plan sponsors that, you know, uh, there's kind of a connection between deferrals, 401k plans, and payroll because of deferrals, and uh, maybe you should use your payroll company as your TPA. Problem is, is, obviously, from time to time I've seen it where the payroll companies are just not up to snuff when it comes to properly administering 401k plans. Um, you know, it looks on paper like a very convenient uh, method because you're eliminating, you know, you're having the payroll company wear both hats. But, um, you know, I will say that over the years, my articles criticizing that process of hiring paychecks and ADPs and TPA for the plan is a bad idea. Uh, I don't get any business from them, uh, from ADP and paychecks, but I do get a lot of business from correcting a lot of their mistakes. Um, there are a lot of reasons that you should hire, you know, a plan sponsor should hire TPA and the fact that the, the TPA is also the payroll provider, you know, isn't one of them. Um, I just think that, you know, over time, they have not still shown a commitment to, you know, great administrative works. You know, there are obviously a lot of TPAs over the years where I've changed my opinion on them because there's been a greater dedication to getting things right. And over the last 11 years that I've been writing these articles, I still have not seen it from them. And, and hopefully um, I will so I can, you know, make uh, more friends in the business rather than making enemies because uh, of my uh, stances on the issue. Last but not least, um, you know, looking good on paper, and I think practice now, um, years ago I was always against revenue sharing funds. Um, to me, when I first heard of it, when I first started in business, I just thought it was something that was just a bad idea. Uh, it just, to me, looked like a kickback. It sounded like a kickback. Um, you know, and, and prior to fee disclosure uh, regs, uh, you know, plan sponsors thought they were paying nothing for administration. And they didn't know exactly how much our QPA was pocketing through revenue sharing. Um, you know, I would see TPAs tell the plan sponsor, you're saving in fees by using this new revenue sharing paying program, but not realizing, not telling the uh, plan sponsor that the TPA was actually going to be making more money because they didn't properly disclose all the revenue sharing. And it was a... No, it was it was just it was such such a crazy time because you had people convinced that you know using Vanguard index funds in a foreign K plan was more expensive than using actively managed funds because you know Vanguard don't pay revenue sharing, uh, Vanguard can't afford to pay revenue sharing when you're you know charging so little in administrative uh, fees on your funds. Uh, 
so people were convinced that uh, you know using index funds were more expensive, but they, they really weren't. Um, you know, uh, on paper, you know, revenue sharing looks legitimate, but the problem is, it's not every um, fund. You know, obviously Vanguard ain't paying uh, revenue sharing. Dimensional ain't paying revenue sharing. Uh, a lot of these index funds aren't paying revenue sharing, and even a lot of the actively managed funds aren't paying are paid for are paying revenue sharing so because only you know select funds are paying it it gives the idea that the funds were picked solely because they paid revenue sharing um, it's just to me it's just a, a, a bad recipe and when I was railing against it 10 years ago people were laughing at me 10 12 years ago oh, Ari, you're crazy that's it's, that's not what it is and the revenue sharing is not gonna go bye-bye but clearly it has. Um, you know, I just think that it was one of those things that just, you know, on paper looked great, and in actuality it was terrible because, again, not every fund was paying it, and, you know, it gives the idea that funds were picked solely because they paid revenue sharing. And, you know, I think there are so many reasons to allow um, for funds in a plan and, and just, you know, I, the idea that they were picked mainly because they paid revenue sharing was, was bad. And I would see that where, you know, plan sponsor was told, this is the platform, and if you pick these revenue sharing funds, this is what your fees are, and if you don't, this is what your fees are. And um, plan sponsors wanted to pay in their idea what was going to be less. And, you know, obviously fee disclosure has really, um, fee disclosure litigation has really put, you know, a stop to a lot of the revenue sharing where I believe that one day revenue sharing is going to be, as obsolete as Betamax and bell bottoms. Um, I mean, occasionally you see bell bottoms here and there, but I don't see many people, um, you know, clamoring for Betamax. Um, and 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 again, uh, this is this is years in the making. I, I was railing against this, you know. You ever see my earlier LinkedIn writings when I started my own practice? I just thought it was just a recipe for disaster. And, um, Thankfully, it's gone out of style, but it, but it's still there, and, and there are still plans out there that do pay revenue sharing, and and again, I just think that it's just a bad idea. So um, hopefully you uh, enjoyed this episode of that 401k podcast. Uh, tune in next week, and of course, go to that 401 for further information on all our live events. Thanks. Bye.